but he has not given me over to death. You know, even through the triumph, the psalmist king is looking back at all the difficulty that he's been through, and guess what he's saying? I'm glad to be on the other end of this. We're triumphing and we're singing, but Lord, through the difficult times, you were teaching me so much. Who has that testimony here? Uh, you remember James 1, 1 and 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith will produce what? Endurance, strength, spiritual strength inside. You know, as one pastor put it, Pastor Steve Lawson, he talked about this phrase being disciplined severely as what the Lord uses for our own good to discipline us, develop us, and deepen us spiritually. You know, one scene in the Old Testament that I would just point is point out is Exodus chapter Exodus chapter 15. Do you remember when the children of Israel, this is this is actually something that the psalmist in 118 was picking up on when he wrote this psalm. He's picking up on the song of the sea that Moses and Miriam sung after they had been delivered from the armies of Egypt that were following them into the Red Sea, and the Lord had parted the Red Sea, but then closed on the enemies. Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse 2. Look at this song. It's Moses and the people of Israel. They sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he has cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths of depths like a stone. Look at this. It's the same language as Psalm 118. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Look at verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Verse 12. You stretched out your right hand. Verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. So a lot of similar language there from that song of the sea to the psalmist. Now it's a call to holiness and consecration, verses 19 through 21. Back at Psalm 118. Here the king is, it's the battle is over. The song is being sung. The lessons have been learned. Now it's a call to holiness. And it's bold. It's very bold in terms of the approach to the Lord, because it's the picture of the tabernacle where you have the holy curtain that only if you are holy, only if the sacrifices are made, can you enter in and worship in this way. Priests, if they did not follow by the letter of the law in the Old Testament, were killed and slain immediately if they were not holy and righteous in motive and deed as they offered the sacrifice to worship. Verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. He's so eager to be grateful to the Lord in holy worship that he's bold. It's almost like he's getting ahead of himself just saying, I, I want to enter in, I want to rush in. And we have that same confidence through the blood of Christ. Do we not, amen? 
We do. We enter in. We, we want to be careful. We want to be respectful, but we want to rush in to God's presence. Verse 20, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Now, verse 22, this is a call for salvation. This is a very familiar text here through our New Testament. It's quoted often. It's both historic in this moment, speaking of the king himself, the one who had been blessed by God to lead the army of Israel through battle, but it's prophetic also. This is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's a call for salvation. Again, it begins with the king's testimony, but it immediately in our minds, because we're New Testament Christians and we have read the New Testament we, we have to look back through the glasses of the New Testament upon this verse. We want to interpret it um, in its historical context and move forward to the New Testament in terms of the fulfillment. But we can't help as Christians but say, this is a prophecy about Jesus. So let's look at it first of all, first and foremost, in its historical context. A stone here is the cornerstone. Some call it the capstone, but a cornerstone architecturally, is a very, very important stone because two walls are adjoined by one stone. And so builders would be highly suspicious of any stone that would not qualify to be in that slot. And so this king is saying, listen, all the odds were against me. I was a king that was going down. I'm surrounded by bees. The enemy has pushed me off my seat of power and I am falling. And I was an unlikely king that would win in battle. But guess what? You maybe rejected me because you thought I was going to go down. He, he's saying literally, not just that the enemies from the outside of Israel were rejecting, but, but even the followers inside of Israel were rejecting this king. They were pictured as the builders that were going, eh, that stone's really not going to hold up. We're kind of backing away from this king. We, you know, we don't think that stone's going to hold this building together. We're rejecting him. But the Lord, in his doing, did something marvelous. The Lord rescued Israel. It's a surprising phrasing there. Something marvelous happened. The underdog, he was in the boxing match, and it's, you know, the last round, and he's going down, and suddenly... He's revitalized and strengthened to win the battle. In the end, something marvelous was done by God. Isn't this exactly what happened to Christ? I mean, think about it. Yeah, people were probably skeptical from outside of Israel. But literally, in terms of Jesus, the builders who would be the Jews... They were the ones hearing the words of Jesus. They were the ones who were anticipating the Messiah. They were the ones who were waving palm branches, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Be our military war hero. Take over in the way that we've always thought that you will. And yet Jesus, who came as a suffering servant, he was rejected 
by the Jews. They said, crucify him, kill him, do away with this despicable one. We do not want Jesus. And then surprise, three days later, Jesus rose on the third day. Something marvelous was done. And this is what the New Testament writers um, spoke of. Matthew 21, if you look at that, Matthew 21. Let's just take a quick journey through the New Testament with these references. Matthew 21, turn with me there. Verse 42. After Jesus gave a parable where he was condemning the Jews and specifically the the scribes, the chief priests, verse 45, and the Pharisees, they perceived that Jesus was speaking of them. And in verse 42, he says, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's predicting what Christ is going to do, where he's going to be killed and rejected and then raised again on the third day. Acts chapter 4 is where the apostle Peter, he had just healed a man who was lame, and a crowd was around him, and the Sanhedrin was scrutinizing him. And in verse Chapter 4 of, of, of the book of Acts, in verse 11, says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. In verse 12, look at this. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you, we must be saved. So as Peter was putting his life on the line and confronting the Sanhedrin, knowing that he could be killed at any moment, he's quoting Psalm 118 because this is the gospel. And as the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 defines and describes the church, in verse 18, he says, Through him, through Christ, we both have access, both Jew and Gentile have access in one spirit to the Father. We're no longer strangers or aliens, verse 20. But on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then in First Peter, which we're going to look at um, after the new year, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. Again, Jesus, I mean, Peter is speaking of uh, Jesus being the cornerstone, but he's talking in particular to how we are living stones. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, Christ is a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Listen. This is not just a Bible lesson where we're sort of looking at Psalm 118 and putting it in a historical context. And we, we are thankful for that story about the king being rescued. It, this is more significant than that. This is Old Testament prophecy. This is saying that war happened as a foreshadowing of the ultimate war where Jesus 
won the battle, dying on the cross as the cornerstone rejected and then surprisingly, marvelously, God the Father and the Holy Spirit and Jesus himself, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead, and because of that, he is the cornerstone, not just of our lives in particular, but he is the cornerstone of the church where we are living stones and we are worshipers of Christ. Are you thankful? Are you thankful that God is good and that his love, his steadfast love will endure forever? God was good to save you, and God is good in his loyal love to you to keep you. That's why I believe in eternal security. He bought you. He holds you. He sustains you. You say, but you don't know how bad I've been since I've become a Christian. He holds you. He sustains you, but you don't know what I've done. I, I've just, I've been living in unrepentant immorality. He holds you. He sustains you. He keeps you. He's promised an inheritance for you, guaranteed, where it will be revealed in glory. God's steadfast love endures forever because Jesus is the cornerstone. He was the unlikely carpenter's son from Galilee. Can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, who is this wandering pauper? We wanted the warrior king. This is the suffering servant who served you and me by dying on the cross, procuring your salvation showing that through suffering, God is still good and he's faithful all the way to the end. That's why we can rejoice. That's why we can be thankful. This is what the Lord accomplished. Again, this is what was going on in the mind of Christ as he led this hymn after Passover. He's thinking these thoughts about himself. Verse 23, it's marvelous in, in our eyes. It was the Lord's doing. Look at this. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Who had parents use this verse in a sort of unwieldy way in their lives? Look, you're complaining today. Hey, look, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice in me. Who's that? Who had parents do that, you know? Hey, you better hurry up. Let's get on to church. Look, it's Sunday. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. By golly, you better rejoice. You know, I mean, that's not a bad way to apply the verse, but you have to first and foremost see that this is talking first and foremost historically about the king's deliverance in, in unlikely odds he was delivered in battle. But more significantly in the New Testament, this is talking about Jesus's resurrection. He rose from the dead on the third day and that guarantees ultimate deliverance. That is the day the Lord has made. And so Sunday, which is Resurrection Sunday, as we rejoice in the Lord, a good application is that on Sundays we rejoice in the resurrection. And in that sense, this is the day the Lord has made. Look at verse 26. Verse 26 says, uh, Again, it's a call for salvation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what the people said in worship, laying palm branches down as Jesus rode in. And we've said it, I've said it already many times. They expected someone to be this indomitable ruler to take over and overthrow the Roman government, and he didn't. But this is what they were quoting. We bless you in the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon you. Um, they're, they're saying, save us. Verse 25, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we believe this, but we believe this post Jesus's resurrection. 
Now, lastly, let's go into verses 28 and 29. Verse 27 at the end, um, the festal sacrifice is bound with cords to the horns of the altar. People are bringing sacrifices of thanksgiving in this uh, worship time where they were singing and the Lord's light, the Lord's countenance was, was shining upon these people. And then verses 28 and 29 brings us finally back to where we began. It's a call to thanksgiving. You are my God, I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Now just quiet your hearts for a moment. Just think about what Jesus was thinking. Jesus Christ, yes, fully God, yes, without sin, yes, not tempted internally ever. And yet, in his humanity, sweated great drops of blood right after singing this hymn. Jesus Christ, who is the one who is worthy of our worship, was actually singing. I mean, imagine what Jesus' voice was like. Wow. As he led the disciples in worship. And yet in his heart, as he worshiped and gave thanks in his heart, he was beginning to have anxieties and, and, and internal struggles in his heart and his mind. Not sinful ones, but human emotion. And what he clung to not my will, but your will be done. He's just saying, God, I know you're good. And I know you've got me and you'll keep me all the way to the end. You know, this is your experience as well. And as we go into the communion time, let's cling to the cross work of Jesus Christ together. Let's pray for a time of meditation. If the men will come forward to wait on us. Matthew 26, it is the scene of the Passover. Matthew writes, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. He said, Take eat, this is my body. With that in mind, let's pass the wafers out, which is bread that symbolizes Christ's body that was broken for us. Let's stay in prayerful meditation as the bread is passed.